no, 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 no. You done got me talking politics. I didn't want to. Hey man, how you doing? I'm doing I'm doing all right, man. How about yourself? Good. Yeah. You know, nice and quiet. Just <laughs> just chilling. Nothing much going on in the world or in my life, so yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nothing going on in your personal life and definitely nothing going on in your your country in about twelve days. No, no, nothing at all going on in the in the wider political uh, sphere. So I don't know. We could. Uh, you want to chat about Doctor Who or something? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what do you think about? <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw there was a knitting pattern for the. Uh... Oh, shit! Which doctor was that? That had a really good start. <laughs> <laughs> oh blimey! So, see, I seem to remember around this time, you know, in 2017, about this far out from the general, we had a we had a terror attack on London Bridge as well. So this is quite um, it, one of the one of the interesting facets of this campaign so far has been the, the how much history has repeated itself. You know, it's crazy. I, I yeah. started putting a file together of like, didn't this shit already happen before? Sort of things. Yeah, and it's it's really it's really interesting how you know um, I mean it, you know it, it, the the election was called for similar reasons as last time you know we had a there was a a leader who hadn't yet you know the leader of the Conservative Party hadn't yet been tested um, by the electorate in a general election who took a look at their the polling difference between them and Labour and thought well that's too good not to go for <laughs> Bojo you know. And, yeah, you know, and you know, I mean, but it's interesting. Like the circumstances is, is close to identical. You know, May took over, you know, uh, without a general election because that's how our system works. If um, because the the leader of the party is also the prime minister, if that party is in charge, you know, um, it means that we can. It's it's uh, it's not that unusual actually to end up with a prime minister who wasn't elected. You know, like it happens often enough because it's very rare that you know. Well, I guess. Uh, normally if someone so obviously normally if you lose a general election i mean there's no rule that says you has to but often if you lose a general election you kind of give up being leader of your party at that point yeah. um 
But it's not unusual, especially I have to say with the Conservatives, if, if you've been in office for a while, it's not unusual for the party to decide we don't want this individual leading us anymore and kicking them out. At which point the party has a leadership election. It doesn't force a general election. The parliamentary party then picks who they want to lead instead. And that person just becomes prime minister. Uh, no, no going back to the people needed. And that, I, you know, I mean, I, I realize that sounds fairly strange to uh, people who from other countries who may have dabbled in democracy and may think they've got a handle on how it works. But that's just it's a peculiarity of the British system. And it really comes back to the fact that our prime minister is pretty much like president and leader of the house rolled into one because our, our actual head of state's the queen and she doesn't have any political power whatsoever. Uh, in fact, she's kind of by law neutral. If she tries to do anything remotely political, then everyone has a complete screaming fit. So like, but it does mean all the power is concentrated in this one office. And it also means, as I say, we have this peculiar situation where a leader can be replaced and just become prime minister without, without actually having to get a mandate from the British people. And of course that happened to Theresa May, uh, you know, when Cameron quit after the referendum result and it's happened again now with Johnson. And it is fascinating. Yeah. In both cases they've gone, Oh, you know, well, maybe we should try for that increased majority so we can do what we want to do. Funnily enough on Brexit, actually, I mean, it really is groundhog day. Um, <laughs> And the only difference that I can see between this time and last time so far is the polls were further apart last time than they were this time. They're closer now than they were at the same point, uh, you know, wherever we are now, 12 days out from the actual election. Uh, and they're trending exactly the same way they did last time. The gap's just narrowing literally by the day between Labour and Conservatives. And the other thing that's fun is that the personal approval ratings of Johnson and and Corbyn are moving towards each other uh, on exactly the same pattern as the as the wider as the wider polling goes. So Corbyn is um, kind of, I think, historically unpopular with the general public. I think we haven't had a leader of the opposition who is disliked as much as he since we started measuring this kind of thing. Really? Yeah, he's no, he's horrendously unpopular with the general public. He's incredibly popular within the Labour Party. But that's only about 1% of the population. So, you know, the other 99 have their own views. And Johnson actually is net negative in favourables. He was he started the election around minus five, which is, I mean, that's normally that would be fairly catastrophic for a prime minister. But given what he's up against, not quite so bad. But he's down now around minus 18, minus 20. And Corbyn's climbed to, climbed, mind you, to around minus 35 or something. <laughs> so, like. But you look at the graph and you think, you know, we've got 12 days left. It's not impossible we could get convergence before we get to the actual night of the poll. It really isn't impossible. So, yeah, it's it's but it is it is incredible how much history is repeating itself. And again, as I say, you know, with the events of the last 24 hours, we've had a, we've had a terror attack on London Bridge, another guy with a knife, another fake bomb vest, another heroic intervention by the British public. <laughs> did I did I see one of the guys had a tusk or a Norwal spike or something like that that was trying to yeah. stop the dude? It was actually it was actually a Norwal tusk, yes. So that guy was a Polish chef who was working in the kitchen in the fish market where the attack started. And that was that was a an ornament that was hanging on the wall and he grabbed it off the wall and ran in pursuit of the attacker and uh, used it to help subdue him on the bridge. Yeah. That was quite quite extraordinary stuff <laughs> i you know i i sort of saw that this morning when i got up yeah. i was like did that 
Is this an old video? No, it looks like it's. No, I know someone. Uh, someone on Facebook, uh, someone on Twitter, I think, said that's kind of like that's that's almost like the ultimate fuck you to Brexit, isn't it? The fact that <laughs> one of the principal heroes was a uh, you know a Polish chef brandishing a narwhal tusk. I mean, that's just like how how cosmopolitan can you possibly get? Like that's this is London, man. This is what we love about our city. Um, I mean, another look, I mean, this, this, it's really, I mean, I don't know. I, it's difficult. I mean, I, you know, two people died. That's horrific. It was a terror attack on, 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 you know, in a capital city. That's a dreadful, dreadful thing. The, the story around it is just astonishing. These facts that bubble up. I mean, that's, that's one, one of the other people who subdued the attacker was a convicted murderer who was on day release. Oh. Um, just, and, and the guy himself, the terrorist himself, had an electronic tag on his ri- on his ankle. He was he was known not just known to the authorities, but you know under some kind of sanctioned supervision. Um, the police got there in five minutes. Uh, the suspect was was dead within seven. I think they shot him very quickly when they realised he was wearing a vest, which turned out to be fake. But you don't kind of piss around with that, so fair enough. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, you just don't. It just. I mean, why would you? Um, but yeah, it's just really, uh, really extraordinary stuff. And, uh, and, you know, Johnson's already trying to make hay out of it. He's already trying to blame, you know, trying to sort of attack Labour. I don't know how on earth he thinks there's any angle. It's like, dude, you've been in government for the last nine years. There is no way you can tie this mess to something that's older than nine years in legislation or something like how. It's very, very strange. It's just one of those, one of those similarities between the... Uh quote-unquote conservative parties in in your country and the conservative parties in mine. They will unashamedly howl about people actually not doing what they've actually done. Yeah. You know, like Mitch McConnell here is always complaining about obstruction and going against the normal order of things where, you know... He's sitting on 200-something bills that were passed in the House of Representatives, and, you know, he held up a Supreme Court seat for was over a year. like 15 months or some shit, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, we're talking about the normal order of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's, I mean, that's actually, that's interesting, because that is one of the things I kind of wanted to get into. One of the things I think we are seeing, God help us, is the, is a kind of, it's eerily similar to the Trumpification of the of the Republican Party. What's happened to the Conservatives? So, just before the election, there was a, a fairly crucial Brexit vote held, and a bunch of of the more moderate Tories who um, have been voting this way throughout the process voted against some key aspect of the bill, um, and and were immediately uh, booted out of the party. Just had the whip removed and were were kicked out of the Conservative Party. Now, a handful of them were allowed back in, but some of the others weren't. Um, and a, a lot of conservatives are standing down at this, this election. Uh, they're refusing to run again. And most of them are from the moderate wing of the Conservative Party. So so the Tory party is lurching quite hard to the right under Johnson. Um, so and, many similarities. We've got yeah. record retirements of old school Republicans. Yeah. And, and anybody that's staying in, like, you know, we'll hear, well, we need some multi-party agreement on these things but every you know in america we effectively only have a two-party system when you get to that right in the government yeah yeah every republican that has come out against the trump way has been kicked out of the party 
So then they yeah. just say, see, there's no Republicans. It's like, well, there was that guy, but you kicked him out of the party. Yeah. And so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, the, the the parties, I know in the US, and this is similar, I mean, both parties have been polarizing to a degree. So there is there is a similar phenomenon on the Labour side. Uh, it's less pronounced, I have to say. And there are still <laughs> quite a few prominent, moderate Labour voices that are staying with the party and have been reselected and are running for re-election. So it's not, it really isn't as pronounced. And actually, the, for me, the crucial difference is uh, Corbyn hasn't kicked anybody out. Uh, the people that left the Labour Party left completely voluntarily. You know, they they made that decision to leave for whatever, you know, for whatever reason. But it wasn't something that was forced on them. Whereas, you know, the difference is one vote and Johnson's just pulled the plug, you know, just gone, right, that's it. You're, you're done. Mm-hmm. And we're talking people like, I mean, this, these names may not mean anything to you, but we're talking people like Ken Clark, who's a former conservative chancellor, one of the oldest, one of the longest serving members of parliament in the Conservative Party. You know, he's been a Conservative MP for, I think, 40-odd years, a former Tory Chancellor of the Exchequer. In fact, two former Tory Chancellors of the Exchequer got kicked out, including the immediate predecessor to the guy doing the job now, uh, a guy called Philip Hammond, who, again, you know, he was serving in Theresa May's cabinet as Chancellor, you know, a handful of months ago, and then one vote on Europe. And by the way, Chancellor of the Exchequer, I think he probably knows, even if you don't agree with his politics, as a conservative chancellor exchequer, he probably knows a thing or two about the economics. And if he's voting against Brexit on economic grounds, I would have thought that should probably lead some to pause a little bit about the wisdom of the course of act. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's crazy. Instead, they're just like, no, remove the whip, kick him out. You know, <laughs> it's just bonkers. And and I got to tell you as well, the people they're parachuting in are to these empty seats are terrifying. We've got, um, in our local constituency, we've got the uh, the current sitting Tory MP is quitting, and the guy they've brought in to replace him is a lunatic. He's he's a climate denialist. He's a Islamophobe. He's you know really like he actually he deleted the tweet now, but we got a screenshot of it. The local party, local Labour Party, got a screenshot of it before he deleted it. And it was he said, "I'm basically the the political version of I'm basically the MP version of Guido Fawkes, which is like this absolute far right." blog over here you know that the, the lights and kind of spreading smears about about you know labor politicians and and it's just like wow you know and, and i'm sure that pattern's been replicated where these seats are being vacated and it, that it, it one of the things that's bothered me about how this campaign has rolled out is that that's not getting a lot of scrutiny um johnson like trump is amazing at, at dead cat politics like he's just brilliant at just flinging out completely absurd statements or doing completely bizarre things uh and then everyone spends all their time like you know um tut tutting and and you know wringing their hands and talking about how dreadful it is and it often is dreadful but what they ignore is like but behind the scenes he's making these massive sweeping changes i mean i don't think i don't think a lot of conservatives realize that the party that they signed up to maybe isn't the same party anymore functionally you know like and that does bother me i'm worried about how many people are going to you know how many I'm talking about moderate Tories now, one nation Tories. I'm really genuinely concerned how many of them are going to put their X in the box on election night, not really realizing what it means. You know, and I think if I have a criticism of Labour's campaign over here, we are running a relentlessly positive campaign, and I think on balance that is right because we have got the policies and they don't, and we have got you know uh, optimism and hope and they don't, and we do have a vision for how we want to run the country beyond you know commit an act of crippling economic self harm. <laughs> So we should probably talk about that, you know? Yeah, it, and it I, sounds like a bit of a tantrum. Like, I want to go home. 
Yeah. Oh, well, it's just bonkers. Why? Because. Yeah. No, I, I honest to God, I try really hard and I have tried to engage with people on, on Brexit a number of times and try and get them to explain to me why it's important to them. And they just they can't do it. They cannot explain it to me. It's 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 like we're speaking different languages. Sovereignty. Well, okay, but but, but what does that mean? Well, we, we need to have the power to make our own laws, but but we do. No, but Europe can dictate to us. No, no they can't. They don't. Um, we choose whether or not we ratify the laws that come from Europe. Well, anyway, it's not democratic. Well, no, it is. We elect MEPs. They go to the European Parliament. They vote on the laws there. So we are represented there. We won't be if we leave, though, and they'll make decisions without us. And then we'll still be affected by them because we'll still be their trading partner. And except now we'll be a junior partner. So we'll have to take whatever rules they they choose to impose and we won't have any input. And yeah, but we we need our children need to be free. We need to have sovereign. We need to have the right to make our own decisions. But but we do. We have a parliament. We've always, you know, like you just it, it really is like a, it's a completely emotional argument, you know, and it's based on these kind of gut feeling uh really emotive but kind of ephemeral concepts but they just don't pin down to anything you know when you actually try and engage it just it's just smoke you know it's just smoke and mirrors it just evaporates and yet i can't convince any of them <laughs> that it's lunacy you know i just can't get through to them they're, they're completely convinced of their position that, I think that's what makes the the argument difficult is that logic has no place in it it really does feel that way yeah, it really does feel it. Because I like, that's the thing. It's like, I don't have any emotional attachment at all to the European project. None. You know, I, I really don't. In fact, I, you know, as a as a sort of, you know, as a as a reasonably committed lefty, there's, there's a pretty strong kind of, I mean, there was a, there was an ex- Sort of leader of the Labour Party, Tony Benn, and he, he there was a is known as the Benite critique of Europe, which he came out with in kind of the late seventies, early eighties, and th- a lot of that critique holds up. You know, it is a it is a neoliberal bankers' club, the European Union. You know, and it does uh, the way it dictates to member states when they're in financial crisis how they should behave is is really quite all. I mean, the, the way it behaved towards Greece was absolutely appalling. I mean, it really was disgusting. Um, you know, uh, and and there are there are absolutely there are issues. It's not. Um, it's a very mixed bag. You're forced to, there are certain laws around sort of banking and international finance that I find deeply troubling as as a left winger who, who wants to see that stuff better regulated. At the same time, there are workers protections. There are, you know, working time directives and things like that and, and safety standards that are very important to me. Um, and that I, you know, one of the things I'm worried about with a, a conservative government is once once they're out of Europe, there's nothing to stop them just ripping up all those hard earned worker rights that we've we've accumulated through through the European project. So I'm not an uncritical fan of the EU, but this but my argument for saying in the EU isn't an emotional one. It's an intellectual one. It's it's a fact based argument. It, we you know, we will shrink our economy under Johnson's plan by about six percent. If we go for a no deal crash out, it could be closer to eight to ten. That's that's a that's a generational cliff edge damage to an economy that that that, that just isn't recoverable. You know, people. I, one of the arguments I had recently was people saying, "Oh, I think I think people are exaggerating the impact. I think we'll bounce back in like a decade." But you have no idea what what losing ten percent of the economy looks like. Everything stops working at that point. Absolutely everything falls over, you know, because employment plummets and the stock market plummets and, you know, companies go out of business and that leads to more unemployment. Interest rates, which have been sitting at nowhere forever, will suddenly start to creep up if you're not careful. I mean, it's just, you know, 
economies that take that kind of hit that quickly, they don't recover. They really don't. We'll end up, you know, we'll end up as a second tier economy full stop. And and with all the attendant impact that will have on quality of life, you know, and they just don't get it. They just don't seem to, you know, the. And meanwhile, they look at Labour's spending plans and they say, well, Labour are planning on spending 80 billion over five years. That sounds horrific. It's like, dude, we spent 500 billion in five minutes to bail out the banks Mm -hmm. in 2008. 500 billion and nobody batted a fucking eyelid. And by the way, I think it was the right call. I think we had to do that because we had to stabilise the economy. But let's not freak out about 80 billion over five years. It's no different from the stimulus package that Obama passed after the crash. And guess what? The U.S. economy basically recovered and the British economy basically didn't. Well, guess why? You know, <laughs> like sometimes you have to spend money. You know, you have to do it. And I mean, borrowing weight rates at the moment in the U.K. are uh, historic, literally historically low. They've never been lower. This is the time to spend money, invest in infrastructure, you know, invest in spend 20 billion on giving a high speed broadband to every single house in the country. What's that going to do for the economy? How's that going to stimulate business and growth? If businesses know they come to the UK and no matter where they set up shop, they've got high speed broadband guaranteed. I mean, you know, think it through a little bit, invest a little bit in the transport infrastructure so that our trains actually fucking work, you know, (laughs) and get you there, get you there within sort of two or three hours of when they say they're going to. You know, I mean, you know, the, the, one of the one of the arguments that the right always uses in this country, they talk about about national spending like it's a credit card. You know, like you run up this amount of debt and then you got to pay off like a credit card. And it's it's a it's a good analogy in the sense that it's one that people can easily understand. But it's a terrible analogy because it doesn't bear any resemblance to the actual reality of government borrowing, which is it's much more like getting out a mortgage. And in this case, it's what you know. And in this case, what Labour is saying is let's get out a mortgage while interest rates are incredibly low, and let's you know, build two extensions and, and insulate the loft and, and you know, re, re you know, redo the cellar so it's another living space and, you know, increase the value of the property. That's effectively what the, the labor spending plan is going to do. Um, and the Green New Deal, man, that's so exciting. We, you know, they want it's going to create thousands of jobs building, you know, offshore power plants and um, planting trees and all of this great stuff that, you know, I mean, it's 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 necessary to do if we're going to avert a complete fucking catastrophe that, that our kids will never forgive us for. But it also actually happens to be good economic policy, you know, because it's going to create jobs and it's going to stimulate the economy. And I mean, it will bring fuel bills down eventually. I mean, it, you know, it's just fucking, you can't talk to people because all they hear is like labor overspend and that's bad, you know, and it's like. <laughs> we're talking about uh, overspending. Guess how much the proposed military budget for America is next year? Oh, I can't. I don't. It makes me cry, man. I can't even. Seven hundred and thirty-eight billion dollars is proposed. That's literally an impossible to imagine figure, isn't it? Yeah, I, that's that's even high. I mean, I about shit myself. I think this last year the proposed one was six hundred something, which is still, you know, more than the next twenty countries, yours included, combined. Right. But, you know, we don't have money for healthcare. We don't have money for infrastructure, even though talking about politicians who run on shit and say the other thing as soon as they get their spot. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Trump was all about infrastructure and rebuilding and trains. And I've got this great health care plan. You won't believe it. Believe me. Yeah. But, I, you know, I didn't get to any of these great things that I said I was going to do, even though my party controlled all branches of the government for the first two years. Yeah. I'll do it if you elect me again. 
I promise. Yeah. Well, this is it, isn't it? And that's something that I think, I mean, one of the things that I said quite early on um, when it looked like this election was coming is I kind of I put out a couple of calls on social media saying, hey, guys, so for my American friends, you know, what 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 can you tell me about what to do differently to what you guys did in 2016? Because we've got the same problem. We've got a candidate who lies like breathing. You know, he'll just look down the camera and tell you whatever he thinks you want to hear. And you, you cannot trust him on anything because his track record is, you know, he, the number of lies he's told are just legion and multiplying daily, you know. Um, but what can you usefully do in the face of that? You know, how do you how do you campaign against it? How do you, you know, how do you react to it? And I, no one seems to know. We seem to have a there seems to be a flaw in liberal democracy and the press that cover liberal democracies. We don't seem to know how to effectively respond when somebody's breaking every single rule. And I, I don't know, I, I, I think, I don't have any basis for this at all, except my own kind of psychology, and I've been thinking about it. And I think at least part of the problem is, on a subconscious level, I think most people just kind of assume that there are certain rules in place about what you can and can't say, and that and that there are kind of natural consequences if you just lie all the time, and that you know, like in some sense, there are rules and, well, you know, he wouldn't be allowed to have gotten where he's got to if there were rules that stopped. You know what I mean? I think there's a kind of, and as I say, I don't think it's maybe even conscious. I think it's a subliminal thing where people just feel that instinctively. Well, look, I mean, he's running for prime minister. Surely, surely if he really is telling as many lies as I say, is he couldn't possibly have got where he is, you know? Um, and I just think, I think, I think underpinning that is just, and I've, I've talked about this before. I think, I think people do not actually appreciate just how fragile society is, like any society. I think most of us, because we grow up in it and we're surrounded by it, we assume that it's kind of a natural state. You know, we assume it's just how the world works. And, you know, you can study history and you can look at other cultures where it's not that way and you can intellectually go, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. But I don't think you can escape the programming of being surrounded by it and breathing it every day and, and, and seeing it you know, in every kind of bit of media you consume is just, this is normal. This is how the world works, you know? And I think because we don't understand its vulnerability, we're not good at recognizing a threat when it comes along, you know? And I think that's at least part of the problem. Cause what I keep trying to tell people at the moment is, you know, like what you don't understand is if we don't stop this guy now, we may not be able to stop him next time, exactly. you know, because, because like, and I know you, you know, again, the American project is more advanced in this respect. But one of the things we know the Tories are going to do if they get back in, they're going to start to introduce voter ID laws. I was going to so, ask you about that because I yeah. saw a commercial about voter ID laws. Yeah. And I was like, no, like I, yeah. I, I try. I, <laughs> I've often used UK, although there are flaws in the government as yep. an example of, hey, look, look. I mean, America has one of the worst, if not the worst, voter turnout in the modern world, quote unquote yeah. modern. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, and part of that is because of how actively the conservative party, who loves democracy, who also says that making it easier to vote is a left wing conspiracy to ruin democracy. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's I get really annoyed because Ohio is one of the places that's sort of in the middle where you 
you can get asked for your ID, but there's a lot of ways you can show it. Right. You know, I, I think I can yeah. bring, a utility, bring a utility bill or whatever, right. but I still get annoyed yeah. when I, I go in, I give my name, I give my address, and it's there's hoops. And, yeah. you know, during the Bush, uh, Bush 2 administration, I was a provisional ballot in pretty much every election because the Republican Party Genius. also controls my state a lot. And provisional right. ballots are generally only counted... If it's close. Yeah. No, and, it's it's absolutely appalling. It's it's anti-democratic. And when I heard that people and I knew who it was as soon as I heard that people <laughs> were arguing yeah. for voter ID laws in the UK. It's like, oh, fucking great. Yeah. Well, they, they piloted it in, a, in the last I can't remember if it was the Euros or the last local elections, but they ran a pilot scheme in a couple of areas. And guess what? Yeah, the press turnout, shock horror, we knew. And there were stories of people who were eligible to vote who were prevented because of the ideal laws, mainly elderly people yeah. in that particular constituency. Elderly and the Tories and went the poor. Yeah, that's right. And the Tories went, oh, well, this has been a great success. Like, no, no, <laughs> dude, it hasn't. At the point at which you're preventing people exercising their, their democratic right, that's not a success. That's a fucking travesty. It's a crime against democracy. And, you know, but I mean, look, this is something I've been I've been talking about a lot on, on uh, social media in the last few days because we've been heading up the deadline for voter registration. When is uh, that um, deadline? Is it already passed? It's, it's gone now. Yeah, it's okay. gone. Uh, it, was, it was a couple of days ago. Um, and hey, you know, if you want a silver lining in terms of how things are going, we uh, there were a million and a half more people registered in the last week than did in the last election. And there were overwhelmingly young people. So, um you know, uh, most of the polls that are predicting a hefty Tory majority are predicated on the notion that 30% of young people are going to turn out to vote this time. Now, the last election, that figure was close to 50, which was considered to be way above the norm. But most of the polls that are predicting a big Tory victory are also predicting that, that youth turnout is going to drop back to historic levels of 30%. If Labour can get it above 50, if we can get it to 60 or 70, I'll tell you what, man. <laughs> That, be a changing. That, that's going to make a difference. It's going to make a gigantic difference, especially in those university towns, because, you know, they called the election for, for 12th of December. So a lot of them, a lot of the students are still going to be in their in their university towns rather than at home. There's been a whole kind of push to help people. You can register in both places if you're a student at the moment. I mean, again, I'm sure that's something that's that's something that might disappear if the Tories get back in. But right now you can. And, and, you know, we've been encouraging, I mean, we, the Labour Party has been really encouraging students who are active in particular to say, you know, check your postcode at home and check your postcode where you're at, at school and figure out which one is the marginal, you know, which one, where's your vote and account for more. Um, so, you know, we've been doing all that kind of thing. But here's the thing, you know, this is this for me is the big tell, right? Uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of the two parties, the Labour Party has relentlessly over that over that run up period for that entire week, every single day, you know, uh, Corbyn's Twitter, um, John McDonald, the, the shadow chancellor's Twitter, loads of Labour Party members, activists, they're all tweeting out registered to vote, registered to vote, registered to vote. They did a search on Johnson's timeline 48 hours before, not a single call to register to vote. Stay home, make plans. Hey, is there give a cool a movie on? They don't give a fuck. They don't want. They don't want you to exercise your vote. They don't want you. They don't want people to vote. They they want to restrict people's voting. They don't want people to register. They don't want people to be engaged. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? You know, about the two parties and what they stand for. 
Um, they know they don't re- represent the the majority of the preference. Yeah, that's right. And they're running it. I mean, they're running a thirty five percent strategy. I think explicitly. I think because they they had this guy, they had this dickhead Don, Dominic Cummings who. Oh God, I don't know how long you've got. So he was. Uh... <laughs> I've got as long as you've got, man. Yeah. Okay. This, so this will he... be a bonus for the like seven people from the UK that listen to the show, <laughs> and the rest well, of the no, Americans they're... that know yeah. even less about UK politics than I do. <laughs> so, so the yeah, those seven are all going to be writing you angry letters about everything I got wrong. But uh, yeah, um, but Cummings. So Cummings is a he's a kind of a, I'm trying to think how best to describe him. He what does he remind me of? I'm trying to think of a US equivalent. He. I actually think he's not that dissimilar from this kind of this dickhead. I can't remember his name now, but you know this guy you've got who just got who just got found out for handling all this, you know, white supremacist material and is still in post somehow. Oh um, yeah, uh, there, well, there's quite a few, but I will just sure. say Steve King from Iowa. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, but also no, but I was thinking a guy in the White House. There was a guy in the White House. Oh, that happened. Uh, uh, Stephen that Miller. Uh, there right, you go, Miller. Right, Gargamel. As we there you go. Yeah. Right, right. So it's a similar kind of thing. So Cummings is, um, or I guess he's he's kind of like a Bannon figure as well. In fact, I think he's got links to Bannon. But anyway, he was he was the head of Leave EU, which was the big, the the main campaign to leave the the European Union, and he he spearheaded, he kind of masterminded the campaign. That campaign, by the way, as a matter of fact, broke UK electoral law uh, in terms of uh, spending and undeclared uh, sources of income. So you know, Odd just how just that to, happens. Yeah, odd how that happens, um, and and was brought into Downing Street uh, almost as soon as Johnson became prime minister as a I, th- oh, I want to say press press advisor. I don't know, but you know some very high up kind of personal advisory capacity. Something um, that doesn't have to be. Uh, I don't know if you've got certain people that work with Johnson that have to be approved by the rest of par- Parliament. Uh, not not that no, but there so there are civil servants who have to go through civil service recruitment, which has its own rules about impartiality, and then there are personal advisors who do not and who are political appointments rather than uh, state apparatus appointments. Okay. So yeah, I mean it's not they don't civil servants. I don't think as a rule are approved by parliament, but they do have their own internal processes they have to follow to be appointed, and they are meant to be politically neutral. They are meant to be kind of you know there are quite strict rules about that and about civil servant impartiality, which do not apply to personal advisors. So this guy was a personal advisor. Um, and there was some kind of hoo-ha about whether or not he had security clearances appropriate for his role and whether or not he was deemed a security risk at one point. I think there's still some kind of smoke there about, you know, was he allowed to see documents he shouldn't have been allowed to because he didn't have the highest level of security clearance because he's dodgy, basically. Um now there's a weird thing. He apparently retired from the conservative, retired from working for Johnson three weeks ago, and nobody knew about it until two days ago, which yeah. is just so that's odd in and of itself. Because he so two days ago he released a blog post which is full of, um, amongst other things, anti-Semitic dog whistles about you know the the Remain campaign being fueled by. Um, money from Goldman Sachs, you know. <laughs> but I was why, told why by that the... particular bank, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I thought Jeremy Corbyn was the anti-Semite because he criticized oh. the treatment of Palestinians. Don't. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, that's another no, that... uh, parallel we've got here. Is if you ever say anything about should snipers really be murdering Palestinian children? It's like, well, you're just like Hitler. Yeah, it's um, it's a difficult one, that one, because it's the U.S. handling of it, I think. I mean, one thing that I will say is that I think the Democrats have done a far better job of handling that line of criticism than 
than UK have. I think we've got a problem in the, I think we got a problem with that in the Labour Party in the sense that, um, so Corbyn became leader and we, we gained half a membership of half a million people. So it's almost 1% of the population is a member of the Labour Party now. So by historical British standards, that's literally unprecedented. And the, the UK Labour Party is now one of the biggest political parties in terms of membership in the entirety of Europe. Now, when you have a membership growth that big, you are inevitably going to attract people, uh, you know, a subset of whom have, you know, repellent views. You just are. You're going to attract, you're going to have people who join who are going to be racist in all kinds of unpleasant ways. They're going to have all kinds of bigotries because those people exist in the general population. They exist in the world. And our society has institutional issues around race and that includes anti-semitism as well as other forms of racism islamophobia they're, they're embedded in our societies our societies are products of racism they wouldn't exist in the form they did if we hadn't used racism as a way of exploiting you know uh human beings for free labor and 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 you know created an enormous amount of wealth from from the native countries and and here in, in the uk so you know the idea that the idea that because the Labour Party is an anti-racist party that it won't have racists in it is just absurd. It will. Any 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 group of people in the UK of any size will. And most of the most of the data we've got on the subject suggests that there are less racists in the Labour Party than there are in the other parties, um, or certainly in the Conservatives. You know, like it's less of a problem for us, and there are less racists in Labour than there are in the general population. But are there racists in the Labour Party? Of course, there are. Because there are, because there are racists in every party, there are racists in every movement, there are racists in society, and you know, anti-Semitism is a form of racism, and there are anti-Semites. Yes, there are, there are anti-Semites in the Labour Party, and it stinks. And I would like to see every single one of them booted out. And I would, you know, I'm quite happy to see our internal processes strengthened to make sure that they're booted out. We are an anti-racist party, and if we're going to be an anti-racist party, that means we have to not have racists in our party, right? Yeah, so I'm not going to argue look, with any look of that. Look at yourself and work on it. Exactly. And that is, you know, it's an ongoing project. It's not a finished project. It's something we have to work on. It's the same with the union movement. It's the same with any kind of progressive movements. You know, you have these, you have historical issues you've got to deal with and you have present day stuff you've got to wrestle with. But what I won't do, what I refuse to do is take any lectures at all in racism from the conservative party, <laughs> because they are, they are riddled top to bottom with all kinds of racism, including anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Um, and just, you know, grotesque anti-black racism. And it goes right to the very top. It goes to a prime minister who has said appalling things about people of color in his in his political and in his journalistic career. You know, it comes from a party that ended up deporting British citizens of color from the United Kingdom who were brought over here, you know, who came over here as, as British citizens from from our, you know, from territories and then were sent back because they couldn't prove that they were British citizens. And yet they were. I mean, and, and the only reason they were deported was because of the color of their skin. That's the only reason they were attacked in the first place. Now, that was Theresa May was the Home Secretary when that when that policy, the Windrush scandal, the, the hostile environment policy was introduced in the Home Office. And she was Prime Minister when the scandal really broke. Now, in any normal society, in any normal period of our history, that would have been a, an immediate, uh, you know, that would have been an immediate call for resignation. You would just have quit in in disgrace and disgust to treat British citizens that way, but you know the Tories are so scared of a Corbyn government that they they propped her up and they allowed her to continue, and instead they they sacrificed the the Home Secretary who was serving at the time, you know, which like well she you know she didn't introduce it, it was Theresa May that introduced it, and Johnson's been part of that government the whole time, 
you know, he's part of that whole process. He's part of the same party. And, uh, you know, it, it is, I think the reason it's been effective as an attack line against Labour is, I mean, Corbyn is, Corbyn is probably the most committed, uh, most, someone who is, in terms of leaders of political parties in the UK, I don't think anyone has ever been more committed to the Palestinian cause than Corbyn. I think that's a fair statement to make. And I think, you know, real talk, if you're involved in, in, in Palestinian rights activism and you know you go to rallies and you speak at rallies and you are involved in that movement i think eventually you're going to end up rubbing shoulders with some people who have some fairly repellent views about jewish people i think you're going to run into anti-semites you are actually because there is a strain of anti-semitism within the wider entirely justified and justifiable palestinian movement there is in the same way that there's islamophobia in israel right for the same for the same reasons for obvious immediately clear reasons um so yeah absolutely if you if you believe in the palestinian project you're going to end up sharing some platforms with some people who are going to say some things that are gross are horrible and uh, that you maybe don't necessarily agree with yourself um and i think you know that's that's the biggest criticism you can level at him now you know if you are if you are british and you are jewish and you feel that that genuinely you feel that that disqualifies him to be a, a candidate for for prime minister you know what i'm not going to it's not my place to argue with you on that because i don't, i'm not i don't my life experience is not your life experience and if that genuinely makes you feel threatened or afraid then I, you know i'm desperately terrified you know i'm really sad to hear that i'm horrified to hear that it makes me very sad but uh, but okay i mean i'm not going to i'm not going to tell you you shouldn't feel that way but but the notion that he is more of a threat to to any group than than a johnson premiership would be doesn't pass just doesn't pass muster it doesn't pass any kind of smell test whatsoever and like like i say like if your if your principle is i can never vote for anyone that i think has any kind of hint of of any kind of proximity to any kind of racism at all that's a principle position you're entitled to take and that's fine i would suggest that probably means you're never going to vote in an election in this country ever again or not for the foreseeable future because all the parties have this kind of problem because our society has this kind of problem you know um but i think if you accept that voting is always an act of lesser evilism if you accept that you're always going to be making compromises sometimes uncomfortable compromises with your own principles when you vote because the alternative is to vote is to not vote and let someone even worse win which is how i've always viewed voting as long as i've been an adult i don't think the moral choice in this election is remotely difficult i really don't um because Johnson's just a fucking nightmare on this. He's just an absolute car crash. Um, and if we put him back in, he's just going to get worse. Is there uh, my Americanness is showing? Is are there term limits for prime minister? Nope. No. No. You. you no. Um, no, there aren't. No, you just go because it again because you're not elected as prime minister. What happens is your party forms the the biggest number of seats in the house of commons and therefore your party becomes the party of government and that party is decides who the leader is so there's no term limits on party leaders so there's no term limits on prime minister either so that's um, like sort of like our senate well, you know, yeah exactly Mitch like mcconnell's that. been in charge every time the republicans have been in charge mitch mcconnell's in charge <laughs> yeah i mean i think except i think the the because you're also the leader of the party that makes it um, that's the mechanism by which you get removed. 
Um, and in practice, although there aren't term limits, what happens in practice is eventually prime ministers become unpopular enough that the party get rid of them because they don't, you know, if you, if you've got someone who, you know, that the general public can't stand anymore and you have the power to get rid of them before a general election and put someone they might like more in, then you're going to do it. And that's what tends to end up happening. I like that uh, system more. Uh, you know, McCon- <laughs> McConnell, I think has a 12% approval rating. But, you know, they just gerrymander all the election districts and do the voter suppression. And, uh, you know, like well, with Trump, you know, we've got the Electoral College, which I guess is not the same, but it's people of political parties choosing the representatives. You know, it's long, it's uh, long been understood by everybody except for the press secretaries and Donald Trump that he got uh, almost four million fewer votes yeah. nationally. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it is it is it is possible. So in the UK, it's possible for a government to be elected on a well, it's very possible to be elected on a minority of a vote because we've got um, we don't have a two party system. We've got a three party system in most of the UK and in the regions and nations. We have at least a four party system. Um, Northern Ireland's got I don't even <laughs> forget about it. There's just a whole other thing going on in Northern Ireland. Um, Duncan's my Scotland political guy. Right, so he'll tell you. So in Scotland, it's a four-party race, and one of those parties is the SNP, and they're just running the table at the moment, and have been for the best for the last decade, really. Um, I think in 2015 they swept every single seat. I think they won every single seat, and I think they're on they're on course to make gains again this time. Um, one of the one of the one of the ways this might get decided on election night is how if the Conservatives can hold on to any seats in Scotland or not. Um, and there's no guarantees they will at the moment because again, Johnson's driving for a hard Brexit and Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain. So if the SNP make that the campaign, um, there's a good chance that they'll just wipe the Tories out again. And that'll make it very, very hard for them to form a majority, even if they make gains elsewhere. Um, the political maps really interesting like that actually, cause they so the Tories are likely to face losses in Scotland. They were looking at one point like they might make gains in Wales, but that's now not looking likely. The Welsh Labour vote has really strengthened and recovered, so it looks like they're not going to make gains there. Funnily enough, their best bet now is to make some gains in what are traditional Labour heartlands in the old, uh, I guess I should have to call it the post-industrial north now, um, because a lot of those areas voted overwhelmingly to leave. Um but it will mean lifelong Labour voters switching to voting Conservative, and that's a very hard thing to do because it's a very tribal Labour support up there. It might happen. Um, in fact, it will happen. Whether it happens enough and in enough of the right seats for the Tories to actually make some gains up there remains to be seen. Um, the other big question mark is London, where Labour has been incredibly strong the last couple of elections, but this time out the Liberal Democrats, who are third party, who have run on a very, very strong Remain ticket. I mean, they've they've run on the principle that if they win, they'll revoke Article 50 without a second referendum. Um, now, they, they, they won't because they, I mean, for them to win, they'd have to be polling about 40 points higher than they are. So it's a kind of absurd thing to say because it's like they're not actually going to win. But... Obviously, if if you're tribally remain more than you're tribally Labour, then that's going to feel very attractive. And they're running some big candidates in some seats in London that at the moment are conservative Labour marginals. Now, they're hoping to piggyback from third to first on their brand and on their remaineriness, uh, and that might work. But I think it's equally, if not more likely, that what they'll do is just uh, shave off enough 
votes from Labour that the Tories end up coming through uh, without increasing their vote share at all. So, I mean, that's that's all really complicated. But the, the other thing that's worth bearing in mind, so we did have in 92, the Labour Party did actually score more votes than the Conservatives, but because of where they were distributed, the Conservatives ended up with a majority of around 20. So we do have a kind of, it's a version of the electoral, you know, the electoral college thing. And really what it is, is it's a, it's a, it's an artifact of first past the post. It's a, it's a, it's an inherent flaw in the first past the post system, which is what we've got. So we have 650 constituencies running in the general election, which will return 650 members of parliament. But in each one of them, uh, it will just be won by the person who gets the most votes out of however many people they're running against. So you can see how under those circumstances you can end up with a, you know, the party of government not getting as many votes as the opposition, but because of where they got them, they end up winning anyway. Um, so that is a similar problem. It's not as pronounced because with 650 data points, you're more likely for it to get a spread, but it does distort politics in exactly the same way that you have the issue with, uh, with Iowa, right? Where, where Iowa, because it's the first the first state that runs a primary, uh, people end up spending way more time campaigning there than they do in some other states. And, and you know, you end up with really weird kind of consensus issues around stuff like ethanol, which, you know, really we should be having a conversation about that, but we don't because the first primary is Iowa and there's lots of ethanol farmers in Iowa and we a need to win of, there. So, corn in Iowa, yeah. Yeah, so everyone agrees that ethanol is terribly important and we should keep doing it. Um, so in a similar way, because we have most well not most all general elections in the united kingdom are settled in like 100 150 key marginals which are either you know tory labor or tory lib dem seats and you know those are the seats where the election gets decided right because in all the other seats there's so many tory voters or so many labor voters that the other side just can't win and there's no point in even campaigning um so you end up with jobs for life. You end up with MPs who are just elected every time, which is, you know, also, I think, not good for democracy. But the, the problem we've got here is those 150 swing seats in the UK are not representative of the country as a whole. So, again, as with Iowa, you have a center of gravity effect where uh, political parties tailor their messages based on what they think will go over well in those 150 seats. But what it means is, in consequence, they're not speaking to the vast majority of the people, right? Because they're because they're just not and and policies reflect that now this time out it's a bit different because <laughs> this time out on the one hand you've got a you've got a leader of the labor party who is um who is by european standards a pretty middle of the road uh democratic socialist you know nothing terrifying nothing to write home about but by uk standards he's fairly left-wing and on the other hand we've got you know the uk trump we've got boris johnson who is what would happen if you sent Trump to Eton College? I think at this. <laughs> I really do. I don't think. I don't think there's a huge amount in it. I mean, he's younger, um, but he's other smarter. than that, yeah, yeah, he's smarter. I don't even. I don't even. You know what? I'm not even sure he is smarter. I just think he's he's got a posher accent, and he's. I mean, he's probably read more books. <laughs> oh, he, I'm sure he's read more books. I'm sure but, Trump didn't even read his son's book. But you know, he's not. Uh, you know, he's not, he's not bright. I mean, he, he, it's, he's got that similar trait. I hadn't realized, but I kind of, I was watching him in the leaders debates. He's done a couple of televised debates before he started chickening out. I don't know if you want to get into that later, but he's, he talks like Trump. He has that thing where he just, he rambles and the, the, you know, and he has these non sequiturs and his sentences just don't, 
you know, you, you you play it back in your head afterwards. You're like, I don't think he ever got to a full stop there. I don't think he ever, you know what I mean? Like, it's really, it's really scary stuff. Governance um, by, by toddler ramble. Yeah. And you just feel like as well, you feel like as with Trump, you feel like he's, you really do feel like he's speaking a different language. That's the bit that bothers me. It always bothered me about Trump and it bothers me about Johnson as well. It's like, I don't get this, but I'm not supposed to because he's not trying to talk to me. Yeah, as you know, much like, as, I don't even know if Johnson says that he he wants to be a representative for everybody. Like Trump used to say, he doesn't really say it <laughs> anymore. But no, no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think Johnson's quite got the chutzpah for that one. Um, <laughs> or maybe maybe he just hasn't thought of it. Um, but no, it's quite it's quite extraordinary, um, and it's really it's really worrying. And I mean, you know, we've got this thing now where we had a, and this is Trumpian too. So we had a televised debate. Uh, so there's been a series. The first one was the leaders debate, and that was just Corbyn versus Johnson because only you know one of them is going to be prime minister. So so that's the debate. And the format was fairly awful. It was a studio audience who were applauding every other line and were very partisan. And the moderator was asking pretty facile questions and didn't do a good job of reining Johnson in. And I don't think either. I don't think it played to either candidate's strength particularly. Um, I mean, I think Corbyn did better, but that's mainly because he can speak in complete sentences. I don't think it, <laughs> it didn't exactly shine. And I think both of them suffered a bit from following their bullet points. I think if I have a criticism of Corbyn in debates like that, he's not as agile as I'd like him to be. Like there are counter arguments to the stuff Johnson says and Corbyn tends to just stick to his talking points rather than rather than introduce a counter punch on the fly. Um, and I think that's probably I don't know if that's because he's not quite limber enough to do it or because he's not quite confident enough in doing it. It could be other. He, he does it very occasionally. And when he does do it, it's normally very good. And it's, you know, I just wish he'd do it a bit more often, um, which is a, it's a fairly minor complaint. But anyway, we had that debate and then we had uh uh, the question time debate, which I actually really like because it wasn't a debate. What they did was they had two hours and they got the four party leaders. So so Johnson and Corbyn, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Joe Swinson and the leader of the SNP. Um, and they all four of them, Nicola Sturgeon, and all four of them came out and did a half hour each in front of an audience. But most of the questions, in fact, all the questions came from the audience. Okay. So it was a half hour grilling by an audience. And again, the audience will have been selected carefully to have a spectrum of opinion. And it was. Um, but it was a very, very well-informed audience. They were very politically aware. They were very engaged. They were very astute. And all of the leaders got a grilling. I mean, they all got a fair grilling, including Corbyn. But but Johnson just got a kicking in that one. I mean, there was a point at which he was asked, do you think trust is important? And he said, I think trust is very important. And people laughed. <laughs> I mean, like large numbers of people just laughed at him saying it. They laughed in his face, you know. And then we had a minus gone. Was that one of the I, – I had seen – was that the one where the BBC said they accidentally edited out the laughter at Johnson, but they didn't do it for political purposes? Yeah, so the BBC is not having a good election because, yes, that's right. Um, that was the – I think that was the second big kind of controversy we've had in the in the election. Um, yeah, so the first one – so I'll just go through these then if we're there. So the first one was that – so we had the uh, – we had Remembrance Day – uh, which is, you know, commemorating the, the the fallen from the First and Second World Wars. And there's a big ceremony at the Cenotaph in London. They, you know, the party leaders lay a wreath. The prime minister lays a wreath of poppies, which is our symbol for that. Oh, you remember from our Tommy conversation. Yes. Those are you uh, regular listeners. Uh, and if you're not, go back and listen to that because I'm not going through all that again. Um, <laughs> That's a whole other two hours we don't have time for. Um, but yeah, so so it was. it's the Remembrance Day Sunday. It's a big deal. You know, it's a big ceremony. And uh 
uh, Johnson was a mess. He looked like he'd been dragged through a hedge backwards. He looked like, I mean, he looked hungover. I don't know if he was or not, but he looked, you know, incredibly shabby. And he, he laid the wreath the wrong way up on the, on the ground. He laid it upside down. Now, you know, this is not, look, this is not a big deal, right? But it happened. Um, and it, it's kind of a bit embarrassing. And when the, and when the BBC news bulletin covering, uh, the remembrance day service happened, they, they, they spliced in archive footage of Johnson when he was mayor of London laying the wreath instead of using the footage from the day where he looked like a mess and put it down upside down. It's a bit dodgy. Now, it's a bit dodgy, right? Now, they claim that was an accident and they said, you know, we were, we were archiving the footage at the same time and somehow they got mixed up and it was a kind of, and it's like, you know, insiders were like, dude, if you're going to use archive footage, you know how many forms you have to fill out? It's not possible to do that by accident. Um, but, you know, I guess it is. I mean, anything's possible, right? Um, yeah. I, I work, I've worked in big bureaucratic organizations. Mistakes definitely fucking happen, okay? I'm not going to pretend they don't. But it, it was a very convenient mistake for Johnson, right? Because the thing is, you got to understand the context. A couple of years ago, Corbyn got absolutely excoriated by the by the tabloid press in this country for wearing a coat that they didn't like. No, and I, I'm not fucking exaggerating about that. Literally, they didn't like his coat. It's the Obama um, tan suit. Yeah, and he didn't he didn't lower his head enough when he was bowing in for prayers or something like that. And <laughs> I mean, my favorite one was I think it was the Sun uh, had footage of him had, had a series of photographs of him walking next to someone else and engaging them in a conversation, and then edited the other person out so it looked like it looked like Corbyn was actually dancing down the street. I mean, it was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, so. There's form about Remembrance Sunday, and it's a sore point on the left because of the kicking that Corbyn got. So to see the BBC then splice in footage of Johnson looking all dapper from four years ago when he was mayor of London and laying the wreath the correct way up when he actually looked like a, you know, it's just, it's the hypocrisy of it, you know, and it's just kind of like, really, really? And then, yes, the second big scandal that we had that broke was um, was was what you were talking about. So, yeah, they laughed in his face, and then on the news at one bulletin that it was edited together so that the question was asked and Johnson's answer was given, but the laughter was edited out. Um, and you know, people on Twitter picked up on it straight away. There was, you know, within an hour or two, there were all these YouTube videos running the clips side by side and saying like, what the hell is going on? And the BBC put their hands up. They said it was a, it was an error. Uh, it wasn't intentional, but they were, they were editing the clip because of time, because of the, the lunchtime bulletin was sure. And they did restore the original footage for the six o'clock bulletin for whatever that's worth. So, you know, they, they did try and address it and they did put their hands up. They did put their hands up and say, it wasn't, you know, we, it was misleading, but it wasn't intentional. Um, it would be nice if they, you know, somebody could use a statement from the BBC saying we didn't have enough time to have all the laughter at Boris Johnson for his ridiculous answer. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what you'd like to say, isn't it? I mean, to be fair, if they only covered the laughter, then they wouldn't have time for the bullet. so you can see the point. Like he did get a kicking. But here's the I mean, this is the most serious ones just happened. And this really is actually kind of a problem. So. So there's an interviewer over here called Andrew Neil. Now Andrew Neil is a a very right wing individual. Actually, he he wrote he's I can't remember his involvement with the Spectator magazine, which is I would describe as a far right uh, news magazine. I think it's a I think it's a fortnightly or a weekly magazine, the Spectator. And he's I don't know he's he was editor at one time. I think he's he's on the board maybe of directors something like that. So he's very very involved in the Spectator. It's a very far right, you know, from my perspective, a very right wing magazine. He's a right wing figure. However, he is also probably the toughest TV interviewer we've got. And when he's doing a TV interview, he's not partisan in his abuse. He goes after everybody and he goes after them 
incredibly intensely. I remember in 2010, the Tories had won a, a minority government unexpectedly with with Cameron and, you know, the, the coalition was about to happen. And I remember seeing him at half three in the morning talking to, uh, I think it was uh, Zach Goldsmith, who was then the Tory party treasurer. And just literally at 3.30 in the morning, having been up all night covering the election, just tearing him a new asshole. <laughs> I saw just him for- interview Ben Shapiro. Yes, you did. Right. So, you know, exact. Oh, God, I could have saved a lot of time. Guys, go watch that. That's Andrew Neil. OK, so he he's like he just he doesn't like he doesn't fuck about. OK, yeah. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Right. Now, I don't particularly like that kind of interview style. I think you get more flies with honey. And I actually think I actually think it's kind of not a great approach, but he's very, very good at it. Right. He's it's probably the best. In the, it's old school. Yeah. It is old school. And he's probably the best journalist in the UK at doing that kind of interview. You know, whether you whether you like it or not, you know, he's he's top draw. So the BBC set up a series of interviews, one on ones with Andrew Neil, half hour interviews for each of the leadership candidates, each of the each of the prime minister candidates, uh, Sturgeon, Corbyn, you know, um, Swinson and Johnson. And Corbyn did his and Andrew Neil spent about 10 minutes ripping into him on anti-Semitism. And it, it generated, I think, two days of negative headlines for Corbyn. I mean, it was brutal. And, you know, uh, I, I don't think the line of attack was particularly fair. I don't think Corbyn did a particularly good job either. Um, it was an incredibly tough interview. And then Johnson started saying maybe he wasn't going to turn up for his. Of course. And, and now Labour are claiming that they were told by the BBC that Johnson had already been booked. And that's the only reason they agreed to do the debate in the first place. And the BBC are just stonewalling and saying, no, we, we, we said we, we were intending to get him, but we haven't got him. And as of today, as of right now, he still hasn't confirmed he's going to do it. Now, one of the reasons that's significant is because uh, the day that Corbyn's interview went up was the day before postal ballots arrived on people's doormats. And if Johnson delays his until after people have done their postal vote, then he's, you know, he's removing a major piece of scrutiny um, before, you know, millions actually of people will cast their vote and it's you know it's so obviously transparently unfair you know it's so obviously transparently brutal um and this one's gotten worse i'm afraid because what we since have was there was a a debate on channel 4 news about the climate crisis uh so a a dedicated which i think is really cool you know a dedicated hour-long debate for all of the leaders of the political parties including the green party in this one and i think Clyde Cymru, who are the Welsh version of the... <laughs> I was just about to say the Welsh version of the SMP. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they're yeah. Welsh nationalists, right? Yeah. It's probably the, the better way of putting it. So anyway, so, you know, and, and Johnson just refused to turn up to that one. Uh, and so did the Brexit party. And all the others sent... So Corbyn was there. So all the others sent their leadership, you know, their, their leaders. Um, and, and Johnson refused to go. And, and uh, Nigel Farage refused to go. So... Um, Channel 4 News decided, I think quite brilliantly, to replace Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage with uh, ice sculptures, which would sit on their seats and melt during the course of the debate, which I think was quite pointed bit of symbolism. Um, but the Tories sent um, sent Michael Gove, who's, God, I don't even know what his role is at the moment, but he was he was Education Secretary for a while. Odious, odious man. Who, who? He's the guy who stabbed Johnson in the back last time Johnson went for the leadership. Uh, well, I stabbed him in the front, I guess technically, but it was it was quite an extraordinary moment. And he's now, you know, and they sent him along. I think he well, is he Environment Secretary. God help us. No, I don't think he is. Anyway, whatever. They sent him along, and Channel Four News just said no. 
this is a leaders debate it was agreed that it would be the leadership if you're not going to send your leader we're not we're not putting in a deputy that's not acceptable and it's not acceptable to the other participants and those are the rules of the debate right so the tories have been kicking up so so the the, the johnson response to that was to say well, well we'll have to we'll have to look at channel 4's charter when we get back into government i mean they're direct threatening a news organization here you know because they got yeah exactly absolutely horrifying so so after that johnson said well, I'm not going to, I still haven't decided if I'm doing the Andrew Neil show, but I will do the Andrew Marr show, which is a, you know, a Sunday morning prestige slot interview show. Um, and the BBC yesterday was saying uh, they weren't going to let him do that unless he also agreed to Andrew Neil, which seemed to me to be a reasonable negotiating position for them to take. But following the attack yesterday, they've now said, no, we think it's in the public interest that the people hear from the prime minister at this time. So we're going to let him do the interview so much fun uh, and it's just like it's really really difficult because you just get to the point where you're like how can it how is it that every single issue that comes up and every single error and mistake that gets made favours the, the conservatives and is harming Labour's chances how is that possible That you know how is this a string of coincidences this unlikely in a news organization that big and that season that's covered that many elections, how can you be making this level? And this last one has just caused absolute outrage. I mean, people are just absolutely furious about it. Um, I think rightly so. Because, I mean, at least when they were withholding the gentle interview on the basis, you've got to do the tough one as well. I think that was actually quite a good negotiating stance to take. And you kind of, having made the initial fuck up of not having him nailed down to start with, you know, at least you can see them saying, well, no, you know, if you want to come on, you don't get to pick and choose. But this is just, they've just capitulated completely. Um, and the trouble is, like, just on a basic level here, you know, like, the thing about Johnson and, and Trump, I mean, there's a lot of words you could use to describe them, but I think what it, I think what it comes down to is they're bullies, right? Mm. I mean, really, at their core, that's what they are. They're nothing more grand than that. They're nothing more elaborate than that. They're nothing more impressive than that. They're fucking bullies. Um, and they, 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 they've gotten through their entire life, throwing their weight around, treating other people like shit because they can, because they believe themselves to be superior. Um, and like what we know about bullies is that you, you, you can't give in to them. Like, that's rule 101 with bullies is you can't give them what they want because they don't learn from it except that they can get what they want out of you. And that means they'll just come back and take it again. And next time they'll take more. You have to stand up to them. Every day, that's your lunch money. That's right. You have to stand up to them. You have to take the stand. And, you know, Channel 4 have done it. Channel 4 News did it. And they're now looking down the barrel of, you know, having their charter looked at, which is just... If that was happening in, in like, stereotypically, you know, if that was happening in some failed state in some other region of the world, you know, that's the kind of shit we'd point out and laugh. You know, we'd be all smug as shit about that. You know, we'd be like, well, look at that you know, wherever it might be in the world that, you know, has people who's place that has no exactly. democracy. Yeah. You know it, man. We'd all be like, look at that. See, they can't even, you know, the government's threatening. I mean, the, the candidate for prime ministers threatening, you know, state threatening to, to, you know, attack news organizations. That's, you know, I think we need to send the CIA down there and right. Do you know what I mean? Their government. Ah, oh, dear Lord. 
and here we are and again it's that thing i keep coming back to is like this is the bit it's the fragility i think people just think that the bbc is just going to continue as it's always been and channel four will just continue as it's always been and it's all kind of smoke and mirrors it's like guys if you vote him back in you're giving him the power to do that you know you really are you're empowering him to do what he said he's going to do you know why why would you take the chance why would you take the risk it just doesn't make any sense to me you know i mean you don't you don't even have to i mean we've talked about this before i'm not i'm not the world's biggest corbyn fan i think he's fine i think he's okay i like his policies a lot you know but but he's just you know but it's this is not a difficult choice this is not a difficult choice, you know, morally, ethically, even in terms of the economy, it's not a difficult choice. You well, know, it's, it's do like we... you said, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no, carry on. It, it's like you said with, you know, voting isn't all just this way or no way. You know, it's it's like uh, mass transit. You, you miss yeah. you miss your bus. Yeah. You miss your train. You don't get on the train that goes the other way. You don't not take the train. Yeah. You get on the one that takes you closest to where you're trying to fucking go. That's right. That's right. You know, what's what direction of travel do we want here? And, the, and you know, the idea that, I mean, it, it, the choice couldn't be starker. Do you want, do you want, a, you know, an injection of investment into public infrastructure? Or do you want, do you want to shrink the economy by minimum five, six percent? That's your choice. I mean, for fuck's sake. And the Tories are still still swan about the place like they're the party of sound fiscal responsibility. It drives me batshit, that. It drives me absolutely nuts because the evidence is just not there for it. We've had a decade of pretty much stagnant growth in this country because because of the ideology of austerity, because of the bullshit about the credit card and the need to tighten our belts. So what we've done is we've slashed public services we've we've slashed support for the most vulnerable in our society we've we've you know we've we've parred local government to the fucking bone so that all they can do is literally like collect the fucking bins that's it you know no no other support or infrastructure or anything you know homelessness has just gone through the fucking roof these are choices we've made we voted for these fucking idiots and this is what they've done and this is what they'll keep doing and now we've got a choice do we change direction invest in the fucking infrastructure and get get the country back on its feet again for crying out loud you know or do we vote for brexit do we vote for johnson's hard brexit do we do do we vote for a deal that's worse than the one that may brought back that johnson voted against <laughs> and put a border down the irish fucking sea and shrink our economy by 6% you know i mean how is that a ch- how is how is this close you know what i mean like how is this close for anyone why is it so close I don't know, man. I don't know. Fuck. I don't know. Um, Listen, I got about 15 minutes and I got to get in. So um, is there anything else you wanted to kind of get on or over before? I? Sorry, I just thought I'd better give you a warning. I know you, you had some talking points you wanted to get through. So No, I we, we kind of covered them organically. Um, cool. You know, I wanted to talk, talk about, like you said, the NHS, the voter ID laws, the, the Tory disinfo, like pretending to be a fact checker during the debates. That was fucking unbelievable, man. That was absolute. And again, you know, that's the kind of thing you'd laugh about if it was happening somewhere else. It's the kind of thing you'd just be like, look at these ridiculous. And instead, they're all like, I and mean, that one, they're all like, oh, it's just jolly good japes. It's all part of the cut and thrust to like, no, dude, that's fraud. That's <laughs> attempted fraud. What are you talking about? You're lying to the electorate. And also, what does it say about what they think about the voters? They think we're stupid enough to fall for it. 
I mean, that's the thing for me I'm really getting out of this. And that's something that I'm starting to talk about more as we get to the last couple of weeks of campaigning. It's like, never mind anything else. Just look at the sheer contempt that the conservatives have for the electorate. The fact that they don't encourage you to register to vote, the fact that they think they can just change their Twitter handle and that that will be enough that they can get away with lying to you about about the facts of the debate you know the fact that johnson thinks he can just turn around to to the bbc and say yeah actually i'm not turning up for the tough interviews i'm only going to go for the easy ones if you they know, think I'm this not... little of you when they're trying to get something from you think about how exactly. little they'll think of you when they don't need you anymore exactly because this is not a campaign johnson's not campaigning he's running a series of photo ops he's not engaged in campaigning i mean you know corbyn's fucking traveling the length and breadth of the country and everywhere he stops he's talking to people He's asking questions. He's being questioned himself. He's listening. You know, he's engaging. Johnson's just fucking posing for photographs with turkeys and fucking cows. And it's fucking weird. <laughs> you know, Danny DeVito he, came out for Corbin yesterday. I saw that. That was so nice. That was so good to see. I mean, you know, here's the thing about Johnson, though. Seriously, he was asked a question from a, a relatively friendly interviewer on on uh, on London radio. This is LBC, the, the, the London talk radio station. He refused to answer a question on how many children he has. I mean, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, I, don't, I mean, like, you know, I'm not someone who, I mean, I want to be clear about what I'm saying here. You know, like, there are all kinds of families in the world. I don't judge that at all. I really, really don't. Right. You know, like that's, I get that. And that's, as long as the kids are looked after and everybody's happy, that's great. You know, let's go for your life. There's, there's, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not fucking standing for, you know, the nuclear family values, nu nuclear family Uber alleys or any of that shit. You know what I mean? Like, obviously. Yeah. But, 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 but not being able to, either being unable to or unwilling to answer the question, how many children you've got for a prime minister? Uh, you know what's hilarious about this? Like the Tory slogan, they've dropped it now, but I keep using it. The conservative slogan at the start of this campaign, honest to God, this is what these fucking geniuses came up with, right? How do we do this? How do we sell a conservative party? How do we sell our vision? I know Britain deserves better. I love it. Because you're not fucking wrong, guys. It deserves better than what we've had for the last nine years from you bunch of numpties, that's for sure. You know? Britain deserves better. Yeah, I'd say so. Deserves better than a prime minister who is unable or unwilling to tell us how many children he has. Yeah, I think Britain does deserve better. Right on, man. Right. <laughs> Let's take that one to the streets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think we did what we were hoping cool. to do. I don't know if uh, you know, I, anybody listening to this, unless you actively make people listen to it, are active. I've, uh, I've noticed uh, one, that's one of the reasons why I tried to get a little less American and pay attention to the governments and the activities of governments outside of the states is that I have some very dedicated UK listeners to the show. Oh, cool. That, you know, they're working on getting people... Uh, registered to vote. They're yeah. very afraid of the Trump Johnson alliance. That is, yeah. I mean, they fucking love each other, or at least they love each other's usefulness to each other. Yeah, yeah. But oh, they're, they're, I think, I think, I think, game recognized game. You know, I think they're just they're peas in a pod. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah. Uh, but is there are there any parting words you would like to do, or you know, I don't know if you want to plug any of your shows or. 
if you just want to uh, have like I mean, you said some great shit and I'm glad to have listened <laughs> to it. <laughs> thank you. Well, I mean, thank you for the opportunity to vent. We were talking about this, weren't we, on Messenger when we were coordinating this. I have been carrying this shit around in my head and I just I mean, uh, you know, if you if you if you want to follow me on Twitter at Kit Gonzo, I share an awful lot of this stuff at the moment. It's kind of a fire hose of politics. So that's a good place to keep track of this particular thing for the next few days as I'm doing it. I think what I want to say, I mean, if we've got UK listeners, I think what I want to say, and I keep saying this on Twitter as well, but I think that what's really important to understand is nothing is nothing about this is inevitable. Um, nothing about Johnson is inevitable any more than Trump was. Uh, Trump had to thread a needle to win. It was very, 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 very close. And, you know, in a lot of ways, America was very unlucky with the result it got. Um, the polls, when this election were called, were closer in terms of the conservative and labor votes than they were last time. They are closing at, I think, pretty much exactly the same rate as they were last time. So in the next two weeks, this election is absolutely all to play for. The Labour Party is gaining in the polls every single day of this campaign and the Conservatives are losing support every single day of this campaign. And that is down to the people who are doing that campaign for Labour. That is 100% down to those of you who are listening to this, who are volunteering, who are phone banking, who are door knocking, who are leafleting, who are, yeah, having the arguments on Facebook, having the arguments on Twitter, who are talking to your relatives, your, your gran your, you know, your parents, your kids. Um, one of the amazing things about the Labour Manifesto is we actually do have something for everyone. You know, the, the, the big thing we came out with was writing this historic injustice against women who had their their pensions just, just stolen from them by the Conservatives, you know, forced to work an extra five years because they just arbitrarily raised the, the retirement age for women. Um, and women who had planned for their retirement for years suddenly faced another five years of work. And they're still in work now, those women. I know some of them, right? Now, these are women who are, you know, part of the traditional Tory demographic. They have no reason at all to vote Tory. They were betrayed by the Tories. And Labour are going to put that right. And you can have that conversation with those women. You know them. You know them. You work with them or you, you live with them or they're your gran or they're your parents or they're your mother-in-law. Talk to them. Talk to them about this. Um, because... You know, the media aren't going to help us. The The tabloid press is extraordinarily right wing and has its shoulder to the wheel to try and deliver Johnson as prime minister. The BBC is clearly at best fucking incompetent at this point. You know, they're just a state. They're not going to get it done for you. Um, the Guardian is the Guardian. We know what the Guardian does. It's kind of <laughs> it's more liberal than it is socialist. It will be occasionally helpful. I will say this, I think they're going to endorse us this time because I think they recognize how bad Johnson is and I think it will be more of a negative than a positive endorsement, but you know what, we can take it. But keep having the conversation. And I think if there's one thing I'd say is the Labour Party itself is running a positive campaign and I think that's right because we do have a, an incredible um, we do have you know an incredible manifesto, an incredible program for change. We should be proud of it. We should be talking about it. But you know, as individual campaigners, or as maybe as people who aren't party members, even some of you, but 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 recognise the importance of this fight, we can be a bit more personal. We can be a bit more negative. And I think I don't think it does us any harm at all to talk a bit about the extraordinary threat that Johnson represents to this country. Uh, and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say he is Trump Mark II, that he is the British Trump. I really don't think that is an exaggeration. And I think the record bears that out. Uh, and, you know, therefore it is, 
it is incumbent on us, you know, to to do everything we can to try and prevent him from winning. And I think that what I've learned in my life in terms of politics and in terms of campaigning is this win or lose the ones I get involved with. I always feel better about than the ones that I set out. And this one's way too big to sit out. And it's particularly important because, like I said, you look at how the polls are moving and and it's working. What we're doing is working. The conversations we're having are working. Uh, the more people hear directly from us and engage directly with the message that we have as opposed to seeing it filtered through the bullshit lens of, of the wider media, the more they understand what we stand for, the more we win them over. Uh, this isn't inevitable. And... In two weeks' time, it'll all be over. And I promise you, you will feel so much better in two weeks' time, regardless of the outcome, if you look back on it and say, I did everything I could. So get the fuck on with it, guys.
this is the thing I keep saying on Twitter. It's like if you want to know what a Johnson president, you know, premiership looks like, we've got an example from 2016 just over the pond. You know, like yeah. maybe let's not do that. You know, <laughs> it's, learn, learning from your own mistakes is great, but learning from other people's mistakes, I'm just saying, yeah, like that's something better. you can do. <laughs> even better. <laughs> 